open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 this morning. And you may immediately begin to recognize that as we've been going through John's gospel, we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and uh, last week we were in John chapter 5, and I'm fast forwarding a little bit. Um, This week has been a little challenging, recognizing on the heels of uh, the vote that we took last Lord's Day that uh, I've got three more opportunities to bring God's Word to you, and uh, I've been battling the temptation to want to try to say something profound, right? You know, uh, to try to let me, in these last few messages we have together, to try to make these the three best we've ever had or I've ever done, and that's not in my hands. And so as the the days were kind of trickling down towards today, when I have to have a message ready, um, the Lord reminded me just to continue upon the ordinary means of grace by which he always stirs. There's no need for trying to be profound or smart or wise or uplift you as we go our separate ways, but just continue to do what we've always done. Cling to the ordinary means of grace, which are sufficient. And having said that, it kind of, I think over the next couple weeks, and bear with me if I deviate from it, but I think I want us to spend some time thinking about what will be true for all of us, our great need going forward, Christ, (laughs) just His sufficiency, and abiding in Him. And this is a topic that John talks about throughout his gospel, and I want to fast forward a little bit to begin to think a little bit about abiding in Christ. Look with me at our text this morning, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing what your father did. And they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. 
You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning grateful again that you're a God who speaks, a God who makes yourself known, a God who presents yourself clearly in the portrait of your son, Jesus of Nazareth. And Father, we thank you that through Christ we hear your voice. We can know you. We can know your ways. We can have a reconciled relationship with you through your son, Jesus. But Father, we're reminded here that though you speak, not everyone has ears to hear. Not everyone wants to hear. And the dangerous thing is some think they do, and they don't. Father, give us wisdom. Send your spirit to meet with us this morning. John has written these things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That we might not be like these that Jesus is talking to. But Father, that's a work you have to do. Help us. Help us not to rest in ourselves, in our profession of faith, in what we do. Help us to be like Paul in Philippians 3. We forsake the flesh. We forsake all of our works. And our hope is in Christ alone. Father, if there be anyone today who is not living upon, abiding in, clinging to Jesus, Father, save that soul. For any Christian who's here today who has drifted away from Christ, Father, may your spirit do what only he can do. Show us that we might return to our king. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is simply Abiding in Christ. We have fast-forwarded a couple chapters from where we left off last Lord's Day. And we've skipped over a couple things, but one of the things we've missed is a pattern that John has established. A pattern that we, we, we saw glimpses of in the early chapters of John, but it, over the course of chapters 5, 6, and 7, it becomes even more apparent. And the pattern is this. Jesus makes some extraordinary claim. He says something profound concerning himself. He says something provocative. And then that gives way to debate between he and the Jews who disagree with him. That's the pattern. So if we were to go back, time won't allow us. We see in chapter 7, Jesus declares himself to be the source of living waters. Well, that created all kinds of of debate. And then after that, Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. And they didn't like that either, so they fought over that. And now here in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, Jesus claims this. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see that in verses 31 and 33. That's the claim. You abide in my word, 
you are my true disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, upon first glance, we look at that, and what in the world there got them so fired up? What in that statement of Jesus there would lead to such a fiery exchange? And I think there are two reasons. Number one is this, or the reason is this. Number one, go back and look at chapter 8, verse 30. Just right before the text we began. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So there's the group that he's talking to professed to be believers. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had what? Believed in him. He's talking to, you would think, people who honor him. People who respect him. You would think that the hostility that he experienced in chapters 5, 6, and 7 has kind of gone away and that these are, the, these are the believers. How could it be that the most intense conflict that Jesus is going to face comes in the context of what we just read in verses 30 and 31? These are the people who believed in him. Another reason this exchange between Jesus and these believers is so difficult for us to understand is because well, the words just seem uncontroversial. Go back and look at verses 31 and 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I've heard that as almost a, for the Christian, this, those are sweet words to us. Those are words of delight. We cherish these words. What in the world in that set these believers off so much. Well, let's talk about that first one. The believers, according to verse 30 and 31, that Jesus is addressing. How often have we been told in John's gospel that many believed in Jesus and many were following Jesus? John's gospel has already made it clear. Yeah, lots of people believed in Jesus, and professed to believe in Jesus. But their profession was a false one. The passage we've looked at over and over is John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. When Jesus was at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. This comes after the turning the water into wine at Canaan. But Jesus on his part, so many believed him, and then verse 24 says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Well, that doesn't sound very nice. That doesn't sound very loving or caring or evangelistic. You got people who believe in you, and Jesus does not give himself to them savingly. Well, why in the world would you do that, Jesus? Verse 25. Because Jesus, who is the John chapter 1, eternal word, the eternal logos, is the knower of all things. And verse 25 says, he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about them. He knew what was in them. So all those who profess to believe and follow him, he didn't give himself to them. Why? He knew their hearts. The mouth can say one thing, but always understand God is looking at the heart. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew it, they were not magnetically drawn to Christ because of who Christ is. They were drawn because they just saw him do a miracle. 
If he can do that, what can he do for me? It was a self-serving, it was a selfish, I come to Jesus because he can do this for me. Meanwhile, Jesus in John 17 makes it clear, his whole mission on earth, all that the Father has given me to do, I did for him. I have glorified you on earth. Everything he does is for the glory of God. So you have these multitudes who follow Jesus in John chapter 6, John chapter 7, but not everyone who claims to be a believer is a true believer. This is the truth that John's been pointing us to. Remember, his purpose in writing is that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and live upon that. And he's showing us that the reason this is his drive is because there are literally multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people who profess to believe in Jesus and they are not true believers. There is such a thing as a true believer and simultaneously a false believer. We have to come to terms with this reality. And it's one we have to wrestle with in our own souls. There are true believers and there are temporary believers. Some believe truly from the heart. Those are the ones Jesus knows and gives himself up to savingly. Others believe only superficially and externally. Jesus' parable of the sower tells us all about this. In Luke's gospel, Jesus' parable of the sower, the seed was sown on rocky, thin soil. The people received the word with joy, but there was no root. They believed for a moment, but when the wind came and and the animals came and chewed up the seed or blew it away, they didn't sustain. In time of temptation and time of trial, they depart from Christ. The same was true of the the seed that was sown among the thorny ground. For a moment, man, they were saying all the right things. They were beginning to bear some fruit, but then the weeds began to choke out the word. It didn't bear fruit. We see the same thing in the warning passages in Hebrews. It wasn't that long ago we preached through the book of Hebrews. And that was a warning passage from the author of Hebrews. Not to depart from Christ. Don't drift away to anything else. John, in his epistle of 1 John, mentions false teachers who went out from the church. They went out preaching and teaching, but they weren't true believers. Paul mentions false apostles who disguise themselves as workers of righteousness, but they're not. That's why we sing a song like we just sang, Speak, O Lord. You come, O Lord, and you take your truth and you do what don't plant it deep in us. Don't let us just hear it. Don't let it just kind of lay on the surface. Plant it deep in us. Deep down in us. That the light of Christ may be seen. That it goes down so deep that it, it restores sight to the blind. It helps us to see. Test our thoughts and attitudes. Plant that that word deep in our hearts. That Test us to know, am I I a true believer or a false believer? Test me. I'm not afraid of the results. Because if I'm proven that I'm a false believer, Christ is sufficient. But I need to know. Take your word and do what only you can do in me. Cause my faith to rise. 
cause my eyes to see what you see. That's what John is trying to do here. We've seen exactly what John is addressing in our own day. It's not unheard of to see leaders serve in a capacity in the church, sometimes for years and years and years. Maybe they come to faith at a time when their friends were professing faith in Christ. It was a cool thing to do. Maybe they come to Jesus because they're told if they come to Jesus, He'll fix your problems. But eventually, they walk away. Eventually, they just depart from Christ, leave Him, and He's not a thought anymore. There's no burden for sin. There's nothing, no magnetic drawback to Christ. Some even go to the point of just denying the faith they once professed. Can we have assurance of salvation? Absolutely. But it's objectively on the Bible's terms. And the ultimate test of assurance is this. When you stand before God. And I know that probably sounds annoying to you. That may sound, well, thanks a lot for that. Why does Scripture uphold that as the greatest test of assurance? So you don't stop. So I don't stop clinging to Jesus. So that there never comes a moment where I can relax, where I can put my guard down and say, well, I've got my ticket punched to heaven. It doesn't matter what I do anymore. It does matter. We have myriads and myriads of people who profess to believe and then walk away from the faith when life got difficult or maybe when it got easy and they didn't need Jesus anymore. Maybe it was that, that uh, foxhole Christianity we talked about a couple of weeks ago. The true believer understands that he is always in need of Christ as much today as the day of conversion and clings to Christ. And that really is the line of demarcation. How in the world would someone, if that's the test of assurance, when I stand before the living God, well then it's too late. What is the test that I'm even on the right track in there? Jesus gives that. How do we recognize whether we're true believers? What does Jesus say? True believers abide. True believers abide. Verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are my true disciples. Jesus explains right here what genuine faith looks like. It's abiding in him. An abiding faith in Jesus. What does it mean to abide? A constant faith in Jesus. True disciples Remain in Christ. True disciples don't leave Christ for something better, for something different. True believers go on clinging to Christ because of who He is, because their hearts have seen Him. The Word of God has been planted deep and they've seen and savored the glory of Christ. They go on believing He is all. He is everything. And they continue to believe Him and walk in His ways. Let me be very clear. The mark of true, genuine faith is not your profession of faith. 
You can think back as much as you want to the day and the experience that you first professed Christ and praise the Lord for that. I'm not saying put that out of your memory, never think about it again, don't put anything on it. I'm saying you don't rest everything upon it because if that were true, if that was a genuine experience, the test is your love for Jesus today. Have you abided in him day after day after day, constant, clinging, believing, living upon Christ. The mark of genuine Christianity is not mental or verbal profession of faith. The mark is what? Constantly clinging, abiding to Jesus in His Word. That's the evidence you're a true believer that you've recognized from God's word that God is holy, you've recognized from God's word you are a filthy sinner worthy only of God's wrath. That God has every right to glorify himself eternally in the punishment he executes upon you and upon me. But you have also seen from the word of God that this God who is rich in mercy has given a way of salvation, one way of escape from his wrath. And that way of escape is a person, a person, not any person, his beloved son. And his son was, came to earth in the fullness of time and lived the life we should have lived, everything for the glory of God, and died the death we deserve to die because we did nothing for the glory of God. We robbed God of his glory. And God has saved us by grace. When your eyes have been opened to those realities, God is holy. You are not. I am not. We are worthy only of eternal damnation for his glory. But the beauty of Christ who came for our salvation. When your eyes see that. What else are you going to turn to? What other than Christ would you cling to? Put your hope in. You continue to cling to Jesus because there is nothing apart from him. He is your only hope. And if he is sufficient for your salvation, then my goodness, he is sufficient for every other need you have. If he can satisfy God's wrath eternally, he can take care of whatever your and my problems are on earth. Where he can be quick to say it, but so slow to believe it. I'm in that camp. The answer to the question, how in the world could these who said they believe Jesus, how can, how can they at one moment say that and then in the next be at war with him? The answer is very simple. The belief that they said they professed with their minds and their lips was not true belief. It was not John chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, faith that comes from above, the new birth, the regeneration that comes only from God, giving a new heart, a heart that loves God, that hears God, that responds to God, that sees the glory of Christ. Theirs was of a different sort. Remember, John's gospel is written to you and I, that we may believe truly, genuinely, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
John is concerned for us. And it's our concern for each other going forward that we truly believe by truly abiding in the Word. What was the offense? What was it that got them so fired up in this passage? What is it that set these people off? Well, go back to verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus spoke of a need that they had. A need for to be set free. So what's the implication? If Jesus is talking about their need to be set free, what's the implication there? They are what? They're in bondage. They're in bondage, which is just another way of saying they're not true believers. Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their profession of faith was not genuine. It was not real, that they were still in bondage, that they were slaves. And the way to get out of that bondage is to, verse 31, abide in Christ. The implication here that upsets them is that Jesus of Nazareth comes in and says to these children of Abraham, you're in bondage still. You're in bondage and you need to be set free. And it's not anything you can free yourself from. You need me to free you. Verse 33, here's their response. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free. Well, Jesus is speaking spiritually of an inward bondage. And they understood what he was saying, but they just rejected it outright. You say we're in bondage. Do you know who we are? Do you know our genealogy? Do you know our legacy? We're children of Abraham. You know, Father Abraham had many sons. We're some of the sons and daughters of Abraham. We're the heirs, we're the children, we're the people of promise. We've been set free because of our family lineage. They thought, we don't need you, Jesus. We are spiritually free. Does that sound familiar to you? We don't need you, Jesus. We don't need what you can do for us. We are free. We can do it ourselves. Kind of the anthem of Christianity in America today. I'm spiritually free. I'm spiritually capable. I'm spiritually able to do for myself. I don't need God to do it. I have free will. That's kind of how we live today. That's the idea. Especially here in the United States. Born in the land of the free We just assume that means in every area of life we are free. But that's a dangerous, dangerous error to assume that we are spiritually free. To assume that spiritually we can come to God on our own, on something we do, a step that we take, a checklist we follow. Step one, walk the aisle. Step two, profess faith. Step three, be baptized. I can do it on my own. We in America today look about upon our spiritual condition and assume, just like we're 
in a free nation, that also applies to us spiritually. We're free within ourselves, a capacity to freedom, an ability to please God and to live before Him. Is that what the Bible says about us? Just the opposite. We've in recent weeks looked at Ephesians chapter 2, those opening verses where Paul writes, you are dead in trespasses and sin. What can a dead person do? Spiritually dead. We are limited. We are unable. There is nothing in and of ourselves that we can do. And that's what Jesus is telling them. They thought, we don't need God's help. We've got this on our own. We're children of Abraham. We've got the lineage. We've got the capability, the ability. We don't need your words, Jesus. We've got our own religion. Thanks, but no thanks. We've got our laws, right? We're talking about the Pharisees here. We're talking about the Jews, their legalism. We've got, in order for a Gentile to become a Jew, we've got everything that they need. They, got a, they don't have the, the, the family lineage, but they can become one of us by these steps. Believing these things, doing these things. That was the spirit of their age. No need for Christ's words, no need for the spirit of Christ. Because they were capable in and of themselves. That's the spirit of our age. We still struggle with this today. I hear it often in talking to people. Man is born spiritually good. That's not true. Go back and read Romans chapter 1. We are born dead in sin and trespasses. We are born in, we are born in sin and iniquity. From the moment of conversion, we are the rebels against God. We are at enmity with God. Man is thought to be born essentially good, free, capable of reaching the stars, able to reach God and lay hold of Him by doing the right things. So you understand why Jesus comes in and almost begins to kick out from underneath them? You can do nothing. Why they get upset. He says you're enslaved. Well, what are they enslaved to? Verse 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Sin is what enslaves us. They are enslaved to sin, even though they're children of Abraham. Listen to one commentator, uh, D.A. Carson, on this. D.A. Carson says, Jesus makes plain the kind of slavery he has in mind. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Not only does the practice of sin prove that one is a slave to sin, but the practice of sin actively enslaves. For Jesus, then, the ultimate bondage is not enslavement to a political or economic system, but vicious slavery to a moral failure, to rebellion against the God who has made us. The master is not Caesar, but the master is, listen to this, shameful self-centeredness an evil and enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of the Creator. Jesus says, we're in bondage, we're in bondage to sin. Well, what is sin? Well, I think Carson is right. Sin is not just a breaking of the law. We get to the root of the matter. If we get down to the root, the reality is sin is love misdirected. 
Why do I break the law? Because I don't love God. I love myself. Jesus says, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So if you don't keep the commandments, what's the implication? Don't love Jesus. That's exactly what Carson is telling what the Old Testament tells us. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And your neighbor as yourself. All of the obedience to the law, the things that are pleasing to God on a horizontal, horizontal level and a vertical level are out of the overflow of a love for God. Sin is love misdirected. Sin is love turned inward. Sin is a failure to give God the glory, a failure to give the Creator the glory for making us for His honor and His praise. We love the wrong things. We treasure the wrong things. Therefore, we do the wrong things. This is our deepest problem. Hear this. Our deepest problem is not that we've done bad and going forward I need to do good. I think that's... That's something I struggle with. I've done bad, and so going forward, I need to do good. That's not the problem. The problem is, I am a sinner through and through. And it's not, yes, my actions need to change, but it's me that needs to change. It's my love is misdirected. I'm so infatuated with self, with me, with the world, that I have no regard for God, the creator, the giver. We're enslaved to this. It holds us captive. Don't you feel that? Enslaved to loving yourself and the things of this world too much. And sin blinds us to the truth. There may be some in this room, we hear that, and we're like, well, I don't think I'd do that. Just com compounds the guilt. Sin has blinded us to the reality of it. Our sin makes us deaf to the words of God enslaved to sin by nature. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Jews considered themselves to be sons of God because of their their lineage, because they're children of Abraham. They thought they had a permanent place in God's house because they were born into the right family. Paul at one time, remember in Philippians 3 this morning, thought that same way. But now he said, I count all those things as rubbish. The Greek word there is actually dung. I count it as poop. All my heritage, all the things I used to esteem as poop. And I may have one thing. These false believers should view themselves the way a slave would. A slave living in a home doesn't believe he has ownership of the home. The only rights the slave might have in a home is if what? The owner of the home, or maybe the owner's son, were to grant rights to him. That's what Jesus is saying here. You are in bondage to sin. You are slaves. But the Son 
God's Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Who can set us free? Not you, not me. Not anything we've done, not our our lineage, not our heritage. It's Christ alone. Christ alone. In verses 37 and and on, Jesus goes on to talk about their their works. Testify to exactly what he's saying. He's saying, your works testify that my father is not your father. You claim to be a child of Abraham, that he is your father. If you were a child of Abraham, you'd be doing what Abraham did. And so, what did Abraham do? What were the works of Abraham? Well, we can go back to Genesis and find things like this. Abraham was a man who walked by faith. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And though Abraham had no idea where he was going, God said go, and Abraham walked by faith. Not knowing where he was going, what was going to happen, he just simply heard the voice of God and obeyed. He walked by faith, not by sight. He believed in the promises of God. He heard the voice of God and obeyed. And as flawed a man as Abraham was, he obeyed God to the very end. Jesus says to them, if you were really the children of Abraham, you'd be living like that. Walking by faith. Hearing the word of the Lord. Hearing his promises. Obeying. Abraham heard God's word. Why aren't you listening to it? Abraham believed God's word. You don't believe it. Abraham obeyed. You disobey. Abraham trusted in God alone. You're trusting in yourselves. Or in verse 41, Jesus says, you're doing what your father did. But you just said my father is not Abraham. Who is my father? He responds, you are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now stop there for just a minute. This is their response. There's kind of a double meaning to it. Number one, they're insinuating, no, 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 we're spiritually pure. You've misdiagnosed us. But the second thing, they're taking a shot at Jesus. When they say in verse 41, we were not born of sexual immorality, they're insinuating something about Jesus' virgin birth. Knowing that Jesus was born of a virgin, what's the man-made understanding of what happened there? There's sexual immorality. They're taking a jab at Jesus. Jesus ignores it and presses further down into verse 42. If God were your father, love me. Something we've been hitting upon for years and years and years here. What is the defining characteristic of a true believer? We've seen it from Scripture. We've been listening to it in books we've been reading in some of our reading groups. Thomas Vincent's book, The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ. What is biblically upheld as the defining characteristic of a true believer? The one thing that if you have this genuinely from the heart is the test of your sincerity of your faith. But if there's not, Vincent says you're as dead as an animal carcass on the road. What is it? Love for Christ. Where there's not love for Christ, You're spiritually dead. It doesn't matter how religious you are, how moral you are, how good you are. It doesn't matter if you're from the family of Abraham. That's exactly what Jesus says here. If God were your father, 
Here's the evidence. You would love me. Isn't that what we've seen over and over and over again? You would love me because I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why don't you love me? You can't hear me. You have a spiritual problem. You're in bondage to sin. You can't hear the truth. Oh, keep in mind who he's talking to. They've heard Jesus' voice to the point they have believed and been following him. And this is astounding. They have heard Jesus' claims, but they haven't heard what? Hear. It hasn't moved you to the point of loving me, listening to me clinging to me with all of your life. Remember, that's a true disciple. Abiding, staying, remaining, constantly looking to Jesus. You're not doing that. Why? You've heard, but you haven't heard. To love the Father, to love the Son, where there's no love for the Son, you can be religious, moral. You can sing all the songs about your love for God. If you don't love Jesus, you do not love the Father. It is impossible. And so, who is their Father? Verses 44 and 45. You of are of your Father. Not Abraham. What does he say? The devil. And your will is to do his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, they resemble not Abraham, but the devil. And Who are they? Those who just a few verses ago best we believe in him. We'll follow Jesus everywhere. Jesus says, here's what a true disciple is. All about me. Abide in me. You cling to me. You look unto me. You hold on to me because you have seen in me Of course, this is a difficult thing for the Jews to hear, and maybe in your own soul you're wrestling with the same thing. Maybe it's an uncomfortable thing to you to hear, because why? This is a room full of people who have professed with our lips belief in the Lord Jesus. Every one of us. You wouldn't be a member of this church if you couldn't have convinced me or one of our previous pastors that your faith in Jesus was real as best we could discern it. And we assume, every one of us this morning, just like they did, God is my Father. We pray that's true. But as you look at your life, is there evidence that He is your Father because love the Father, Christ will be everything to you. The path to spiritual freedom Begins with acknowledging our bondage. That's what they couldn't get to. That I can't do this on my own. The way to have God as your father is to realize first and foremost, he is not my father. 
I am a child of Satan. That Ephesians chapter 2. If, that, if you struggle with that, go and read Ephesians chapter 2. That's who we are by nature. Children of wrath. Children of Satan. We in our natural state are enslaved to sin. But by grace, Christ, we can be adopted into the family of God. That's a work of the Spirit, giving us a heart to love Jesus. Let me just ask you this morning as I close. I'm not asking you, do you believe? I'm not asking you, are you a child of God or a child of Satan? I'm asking you as I have to ask my own heart, how's your love for Jesus? And I'm not talking about that Sunday school answer, oh, of course, I love Jesus. Only you can, with God's help, get down into the recesses of your heart and acknowledge where is your love for Jesus. Jesus says it's not just a verbal profession, it's a daily abiding. If you love me, you abide, you remain. You don't drift away from me to another lover. Do you, do you appreciate that in your marriage or in, in the workplace if an employee goes and flirts with another employer for another job? Or if, you, if your kid plays on a team or if you coach a team, do you appreciate it when a, uh, a player goes and flirts with another team? How much more so when God says, love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your love, all your strength, and if you do even just <clears throat> less than that, you've robbed me of glory, and the wages of sin is death. You've misplaced your love. Where is your love this morning? Where's mine? Do we resemble being children of the living God? I want you to have assurance. I've only got a few more weeks with you, and I'm as much preaching to my own heart as I am to yours. In this next season of life, I want us to be clinging to Jesus, abiding in Him. That's what a true Christian is. Does that describe you today? If so, rejoice in the Lord. Praise Him, give Him the glory as Paul did. If you are abiding in Christ, He has done it and He is doing it. And ask Him to continue to press you on in that. If you're not, we'll go before the Lord. Is it a momentary drift you need to repent of and return? Or have you maybe never loved Jesus this way? Seek the Lord while he may be found.